At the time, it seemed rash, but the 17-year-old had his mind made up. I'm not going to university, he told his parents one day. His parents were worried. Harry was a bright kid, and bright kids were supposed to go to university and get a degree. But Harry had something else in mind. A few years later, Harry was working on his blog when he noticed a spike of traffic one day from a strangely familiar domain. It was from the university that his parents were hoping he would attend. That's weird, he thought, and he dived in a little deeper. The syllabus of one of the courses he should have taken now listed one of his articles as required reading. He picked up the phone and called his parents with a smile. Hello, hackers. Thanks a lot for joining us for another episode of the Hacking UI podcast where we hack our way through design, development, and entrepreneurship. I'm David Tintner. And I'm Sagi Schreiber. Today, we had the pleasure of talking to Harry Roberts, the founder of the well-known blog CSS Wizardry. Harry started his career as a web developer at a very young age and has become one of the world's most well-known experts in CSS. He was named Young Developer of the Year in 2014 by Net Magazine and now runs workshops in large companies all across the world. Harry has built an incredible personal brand and we've been following CSS Wizardry for years. We discussed exactly how he got started, what made him successful, and what he thinks is the best way to blog, build a personal brand, and start a side project today. Just a quick reminder that if you're interested in developing your own personal brand and getting yourself out there, we have an amazing program to help you do so, the Side Project Accelerator. We are accepting applications for the next batch for only a few more days, until November 10th, so hurry up and apply. You can get all the information by going to sideprojectaccelerator.com. All right, hackers. Let's get hacking. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hacking UI Podcast. And with us today is Harry Roberts. Harry, what's up, man? Hey, I'm good. How are you? We're good. We're, we're great, actually. And we are very excited to have you here. Really, we've been following your stuff for so, so long. And then, David, you can... Yeah, say. definitely. I think, Harry, you were one of the first blogs that I started following when I was getting into front-end development. I remember reading your work on CSS, you know, years ago. And I think today you've built yourself, you are pretty much the the world-renowned expert on CSS. I think maybe the only person who even competes with you, at least in my mind, as, on, as far as expert level on CSS, maybe is Chris Coyer. Going head-to-head with Chris there. <laughs> Do you yeah. know him, by the way? Chris Coyer, have you, like, have you guys met? Yeah, yeah. We're good friends. I love Chris. He's, he's a really cool guy. I like Chris a lot. He is also extremely clever. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe just for our audience who doesn't know you already, can you just share a little bit of your background and who you are? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm a consultant front-end architect based here in England. What that means is I kind of go in and consult with clients about design systems, CSS architecture, UI toolkits, the design process, things like that. And more and more these days, I'm doing performance engineering and performance consultancy. My thing is just making sure things are fast and and that just, just nice user experiences. So yeah, I do a lot of performance engineering and I do it all on like a consultancy basis. So I was saying this yesterday, actually, I was with a client yesterday and they were asking me how, how like I feel about my work. And I honestly think I'm the luckiest guy alive. I get to spend every day doing a job I truly enjoy. I also get to travel around meeting people in the process. So a lot of my work is, is traveling up to different clients, running workshops, doing kind of audits and consultancy. Uh, helping typically large companies, uh, helping them and their development teams just just get a little more efficient in their actual dev work, but also more efficient as in, you know, is the website running fast? So, um, yeah, my work mainly centers around efficiencies, scale, performance, that kind of stuff. Nice. And when you just started out, can you give us a bit of background on when you started out and when you started CSS Wizardry and how that came to be? Cool. Yeah, well, uh, so interestingly enough, I started working for myself exactly three years ago. Ah, I celebrated... 
So yeah, it's the 26th nice. today, right? But on the 25th of October, 2013, I started working for myself. Nice. Happy anniversary. <laughs> Thank you. I've officially entered my fourth year in business, which is kind of cool. Amazing. But there's, there's like a load of history before that. So a lot of people know me from stuff I've done as a self-employed person for the last three years. But yeah, I started blogging, bought the domain name CSS Wizardry in 2007 when I was 17. So it means I've been doing this for nearly 10 years now, which I only realized recently and it's made me feel really not old. 10 years is a long time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I started out kind of by accident, got into front-end development because I thought I was going to be, I thought it was going to be like the next best thing and as far as design was concerned. I thought I was going to be an amazing designer and I thought I was going to be that good that when I was sort of 16 years old, I thought, right, I need to build myself a portfolio. So I built, I bought like a, a domain with a friend. We started building this little design company together and it was then that I realized oh, I'm terrible at design and I should stick with front-end <laughs> development. Uh, that was around 2005, 2006 and then... Fast forward to 2007, it's when I bought the CFS Wizardry domain. I only bought it because it was on sale as well. It was a, there was a, a domain registrar was running a sale on .com domains. So I was like, oh, I'll treat myself to a, domain name, a new domain name. <laughs> and yeah, fast nice. forward nearly 10 years and it, it's become like a brand in itself. And it's, uh, it's what I do, I do business under. Yeah, well, I wouldn't quite say an empire. There's only me still. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's been a kind of a long journey. Just that's a lot of it seems like it's been coincidence really and just... Like I say, really lucky to do what I love and turn it into a job. Well, that's why we're here. We want to. <laughs> we believe it's not a coincidence, and that's why we want to kind of talk to you about. But yeah, so when you started out, a lot of our audience are people who is just starting out. So do you have any tips? Like if you could go back right now, like almost 10 years ago, when you just started out, I bet there's a lot of stuff which are, are, are irrelevant to what we're, you know, what's going on today, but there probably are stuff that are relevant. So can you talk about some tips for people starting out a blog? Yeah, well, the first thing I'd say is start out the blog. Just have one. Even if you don't write very often, just just have one. It's Having a blog is just so... It, I kind of find it hard to really explain what I mean, but even if people aren't reading it, like, you know, thousands of people a day, just having it there means that someone will find it. And the best example of this, I have a friend who, he made a little cool kind of experiment. Just nothing groundbreaking, but it's cool, it's interesting. It got a few visitors his blog was like real small, didn't have like a readership. But one of the visitors happened to be a guy at Facebook who was a hiring manager. Huh. And he just said to this guy, hey, look, I, I read your article. Do you want to interview at Facebook? So there's just small things like that where just having that presence, you don't know who's actually reading it. It could be someone really important. So my advice yeah. is uh, just have something there, right? When you're starting out, even if you don't want to work yourself, even if you don't, even if you don't really know what you want to do, just having that presence there, uh, yeah. just existing, that's hugely important. And I'm really glad that I did that. And when you started blogging back then, did you have a kind of plan in mind of where you wanted to get to today? Because you mentioned you think that it sounds like you you pretty much made it. It sounds like, you know, you're you're living the life that you wanted to live. Was this intentional back then? The short answer is yes. I never knew exactly what I wanted to do with it, but I knew that I was going to set up a blog. I was going to write the best stuff that I could. Because, I mean, I didn't go to university or anything, so I don't have like a degree to fall back on or anything like that. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do... If I'm going to avoid university and go into web development, I need to make sure I do it properly. I always knew that what I wanted to do was commit pretty fully to this thing. I, I had no idea what I ultimately wanted to do. I didn't know if I'd want to work for myself or, or anything like that specifically. I just thought I want to be really good at what I do. Uh, I want to try and keep good at what I do. And that's why I kind of specialized so heavily. So I always did have some idea that the blog or the, the brand, for want of a better word, was going to work for me at some point. You know, I wanted to make sure it was something that I could use to gain momentum. And actually kind of, I don't police my brand. I'm like, just, it's just me behind it. But there are certain things I've always done with the blog, like 
it always has to represent me completely. Like I don't accept any sponsored posts. I get emails all the time. People saying, oh, can you review this product for us? My blanket rule is like, no, the, the blog has to stay a certain like, not quality, but it has to have a certain message that it gives across that is going to help me with that kind of branding effort, I guess. Yeah. I, and we get that from a lot of people that we talk to because, I mean, that's your authenticity. I mean, you, you can break that. And I imagine you must be turning down a significant amount of money to, in order to stay with that authenticity. Not, I wouldn't say significant. It's definitely some money. It's not like, it's not like I'm turning away like tens of thousands of dollars. It's the, the numbers are small enough that I can comfortably say goodbye to it. If someone came along and said, oh, if you review this, or, or will you sell us your blog for like, you know, $500,000? I'd be like, yeah, go on, have it. That's a lot of money. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not, we're not dealing with huge numbers. So it's, it's comfortable. I'm comfortable telling people that, look, you know, I don't need that money. Actually keeping the blog true to itself is, is more important to me. Cool. And, and you said you didn't go to university or anything. Like, do you have a specific reasons behind it? Stuff you still want to talk about today? Yeah, yeah. So I, the English education system, I guess it may well be the same, but the English education system puts really heavy focus on degrees and academia, which I, I disagree with. I don't think that's the right thing for every single person in a country. I think that certain professions would require a degree, but in England, everyone gets forced down this. You must have a degree. You must stay studying for four more years. And for me, I was, I was toying with the idea. I went and interviewed at different universities. I applied for universities because I thought, well, you know, I want to go into a relatively academic profession. Maybe I should get a degree. But I got to a point when I was 17 years old, 18 years old, when I needed to be start applying for universities. Well, I was actually getting freelance work. I was working as a part-time web developer sort of after college, you know, leaving college at like 3 p.m. and going to work for a couple of hours for a local company. So I had a discussion with my parents where I said, look, I, I don't think I need university. I know that I want to be a developer. I'm technically, I'm, I'm already a developer. And my father, he sort of said, look, we want you to go to university. He never went to university. So he was like, I want my son, I want my firstborn yeah. son to get a degree. <laughs> so he said to me, look, I want you to go to university, but I'll make you a deal. If you apply to three universities and three jobs, at least we know you've given both opportunities, like the equal effort. So I did. I applied for universities and jobs. And my dream job, they accepted me at the interview, basically. I was 17 years old, went and sat in this office in the big city, Absolutely terrified. I had sweat patches like everywhere. I was so scared. Because <laughs> I was out of place. I was 17. I was interviewed by a guy who was the creative director. He ended up being like, the coolest guy I ever worked for. I still, we're still really good friends. Nice. And he was like, yeah, when can you start? And I was like, um, well, I need to finish school first so I can start in maybe three weeks. And that was that. <laughs> I started working um, as a developer. And um, my parents at the time, because they didn't, they didn't really understand what I do. They were a bit concerned. They were like, yeah, we don't know if this is the right thing. But then funny thing happened. Uh, one of the universities that I interviewed at, I noticed traffic. So after I, I said to this university, look, thank you for accepting me, but I've already got a job, so I won't be attending university. Uh, thank you for your time. And uh, about three months later, I noticed traffic coming to my website from the university's domain. So I, huh. uh, Google Analytics followed the traffic back, and it turns out the course that I was that I applied for had listed my website as recommended reading for that course. <laughs> so I was like, geez, I nearly paid to go to university and teach myself. <laughs> so as soon as I told my parents that, I was like, look, the, the university course that I nearly went on, they're actually using my material to teach the students. And then my parents were like, oh, okay, yeah, you were right. <laughs> yeah, didn't get the degree. And I don't feel like it's held me back in sort of 99% of my work. Nobody's ever asked if I have a degree except one US company who, well, a very big company, it was Apple. Apple in, got in touch and they wanted to interview me for a job. And I was really excited. I was like, oh my God, Apple. Imagine working for Apple. 
And as soon as they, we had a phone interview, which went really well, which meant I had a second phone interview with the tech lead. And as soon as he found out that I didn't have a degree, he was like, yep, we can't talk to you. Goodbye. And that was it. So that's the only time in my kind of 10 year career that it's, it's proved problematic. I think they did so, you a favor though. I mean, not a lot of people want to work at Apple. <laughs> uh, I've, I've um, heard this. I've heard this as well. I think I maybe avoided it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like yeah. things worked out really well. That's an amazing story. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Thank you. So I want to ask you the combination of, of not going to university, but also you started really young and you got kind of into this industry at like a pretty senior position pretty early on. What was that like working with people who I imagine were much older than you and you were in a senior position. Did you ever struggle with that? Yeah, that's, um, well, you're really doing your research. This is cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I started professionally when I was like 17 years old. So by the time I was sort of 20, most people hadn't even left university yet. And I was already three years into the industry. I was working for a startup that got wound down, like they closed the business. So I was effectively made redundant. And I was considering maybe I should go freelance. I hadn't worked on any big projects at this point. I'd just done small WordPress sites and things. But I was thinking, oh, well, you know, I've got people following me on Twitter. I've I'm doing CSS experiments that are getting quite a lot of uh, interest. So maybe I could go freelance. And I didn't because I actually got a phone call from Sky, a huge kind of telecom, not telecoms, like broadcast company here in the UK, offering me a senior position. And I was like, sounds terrifying. I'm like 20 years old. I shouldn't be a senior anywhere. But I went for the interview and I, I passed the interview. So I, was, I had the technical know-how. But it's quite an interesting one, the, the, the senior thing. I was thinking I'm going to be out of my depth, but I've got like a, a sort of small micro philosophy that if someone gives you an opportunity, you have a responsibility to take it. A lot of people would have sort of killed for that same opportunity. I would have felt really bad if I'd have just said, oh, no, no, not for me. If someone gives you something like that, you should take it. You shouldn't think twice, just take it. Great advice for our listeners right now. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. My entire career has been just taking opportunities. If you're lucky enough to be given something, I do think you have a duty to take it yeah. and not be kind of, it's almost ungrateful to say, oh, thank you for offering me an amazing position at this company, but no, thank you. So I was like, yeah, definitely <laughs> yeah. I'll do it. But it ended up being really interesting because I was a senior at Sky, but it turned out I was the only sort of front end developer on any of the projects I was working on. So I didn't actually do much kind of leadership at that point. So I was a senior, but I didn't have a team of juniors underneath me. It was just me working on stuff. Quite a lot of responsibility on my shoulders, but the most formative work of my career. If I hadn't gone to Sky, I certainly would not be doing, would not be doing what I'm doing now. Okay. Learning that sort of scale and size and, and process and performance, having to sort of research this stuff firsthand doing the kind of writing about CSS architecture, I would have never had to solve those problems if I'd have gone freelance earlier, if that makes sense. So it was kind of a, yeah. I'm, I'm quite glad I took that opportunity. But I never actually got into any, there's no animosity, there was no people, there were no one sort of you know, 30, 40 years old resenting the fact that I was only 20. Everyone I worked with at Sky was, was real nice, they're all, they're all friends. So yeah, it was, it was a really, it was interesting from like a, just a surreal point of view. But actually when it came down to it, it was just a job like any other. Just a very good one. And how did CSS Wizardry kind of like fall into place where you were working on a full-time job? How did you kind of like maintain that? And how do you feel about having a side project like that? So, well, CSS Wizardry started off before I even started working full-time. So I had it there. Then when I started working full-time, there's actually a period where I didn't write much at all for the first year I was working. In fact, I actually decommissioned the blog side completely and got rid of the blog. It was just a portfolio for a, a year or two. Oh, wow. Then in 2009, I ramped things back up. And it would just be things like, uh, for CSS specifically, the mid to late 2000 and zeros were really fun. It's lots of CSS3. It seems really sort of uh, almost cute now, but we were excited by round corners in CSS3. It's just yeah. stuff like that. 
<laughs> so there's a lot of things to be writing about. Uh, so I would just write things on an evening. I would I was just really into it. I would write as much as I could. And then for the first few years, it was just a blog about tricks, about sort of doing this in CSS3. My Still, my most kind of Googled article is pure CSS dropdown. Mm-hmm. So that's a, the that's a kind of stuff I was writing. And I never treated it as a job. So I would never say, like, I have to write one article a week. It would be... Uh, I've got an idea, I'll write it up. Or I'm, I might do three articles one week and then go two months without writing anything. I feel like forcing yourself to write is usually counterproductive. That's awesome. And I want to follow up on that. But just before I do that, I want us to take a quick break and give a shout out to our sponsors for this episode. As you've heard, applications for the next batch of the Side Project Accelerator are now open. If you're motivated to get yourself out there, build an audience and learn to make passive income, then we want you in. In the first eight weeks of the program, we have a different lesson each week. Week one. We clear all obstacles and help you build a sustainable routine for working on your side project. Week two. We start building your email list and begin to send a weekly newsletter. Week three. We go over our writing methods and help you create your very first content upgrade. Week four. We dive into automation and give you our secrets to get a shitload of stuff done in a very short period of time. Week five. Is all about building your army. We show you how to hire freelancers and outsource the work that you don't want to do. Week six is a lesson about monetizing, and by the end, we've laid out your plan to make passive income from your side project. Week seven. We discuss all sorts of new ways to reach your audience and get started with videos, podcasting, and live broadcasts. And week eight. That's all about Demo Day. You present your project to the world. Oh, yeah. But the program doesn't end there. You'll have lifetime access to our community, and that means that each month, we will bring an expert for a private closed Q&A session. Our experts from Batch 1 include Tobias Van Schneider, Jeffrey Zellman, and Paul Jarvis, among other amazing leaders. Applications are open until November 10th, so apply soon. Yeah, I mean, I can relate. At the beginning of Hacking UI, we were with this project, but we were both working full-time jobs at a startup, and we just wrote, like, an article once every, like, two months or something like that. And yeah, a month, two months. Yeah, but, but people were waiting when you write, like, uh, with a long distance in between, and they're quality articles. So people are waiting for your next article. Exactly. You're, you've just said it perfectly. It's, it's quality. People will wait for quality. I think the best example of this was, so Smashing Magazine, sort of five, ten years ago, was, like, the 10 best footers or like 25 illustrated backgrounds. And people were just sick and tired of that. They were sort of very vocal with the fact that and you know, we were tired of seeing these listicles. And Smashing Mag, Vitaly and his team, they took that feedback on board. And now they publish a little less frequently, but the quality of the articles that appear on Smashing Mag now has really, they've turned it around completely. And they're now a, a trusted and recognized resource. So I think you're right. I think people will wait for quality. People get bored of just churned out articles. So did you have any like writing experience beforehand? I mean, you know, to start writing and, and start writing well is not so easy for a lot of people. It is difficult. I've always enjoyed writing. I've never written before I had a blog. I'd never written anything other than things that I had to write for school. But I enjoy writing. Not like I would never be an author. I've never written a novel or anything like that. But in school, I always did quite well at English because I just quite enjoy studying. Like just I'm a developer, right? And I've got a thing for details. So I've got like, I've actually got two books behind me just all about punctuation. Because like, I just, find, really? that, I just nice. find that stuff interesting. Nice. But what I do think is that if I don't write an article for a while, I find it really hard to get back into it. I find it very, very hard to actually find my writing style again. And a lot of people suffer with that. And I think I read a really good article a couple of days ago, which is, you know, if you're not very good at getting into writing or getting into your flow, just start typing anything. Just start typing about your general idea. And then all of a sudden you'll pick up a point where you're like, oh, okay, this is making sense. And then you'll type and you'll type and you'll type. Then you just go back and you delete like the first three sentences. It's basically just, it's just a way of just writing anything. Even the mm. first three sentences are complete garbage. 
you will pick up a flow where you're, you just get onto a kind of a, into a role. And it's, uh, I've, I've used that technique a couple of times recently because I haven't been writing articles that frequently, apart from I've done four in the last two weeks now, just inspiration struck. So yeah, anyway, I, I, a lot of people tell me this kind of, like you just said, you know, I've never done any writing before. I'm not particularly good at writing. My advice is, well, the only way to get good at something is practice. Just scribble some stuff down. If it doesn't make sense, it's fine. Don't publish it. You know, edit it. Yeah, David can say. David and I was uh, doing the 30-day challenge that he put out for himself uh, on his birthday. And it's not, no, it's like 24 days in, right? Yeah. So I'm writing a new article every day because for exactly what you're talking about is that I was writing kind of you know sparingly on Hacking UI. And I said exactly what you're talking about, that I really want to write more. And it's mm-hmm. just difficult for me to get back into it if I don't write an article for a month or two in between. Exactly what you said, that it's like kind of a muscle that needs to be worked. So I said, okay, I want to write a new article every day. I think uh, I've got a lot of draft articles where I will try and just write something just to try and keep that, like you said, that, that muscle exercise. I've got about 10 articles that I started writing over the last couple of years that they're not finished. I haven't published them. But it's that kind of thing of, well, I haven't even written for, written for myself in like you know two months. So yeah, just kind of like training oneself to keep doing it. I had a friend, actually. He had a really nice idea for uh, 30 languages in 30 days. I'm not sure if he's done it yet, but he wanted to practice both his programming and his writing skills. So he was going to look, he was just going to do a simple, like, uh, calculator program in 30 different languages, one every day for a month, starting with, like, a old, old language like Fortran, then moving towards more modern languages and functional languages like Haskell or uh, things like Scala, just doing different things, but just for 30 days, like getting the geeky kind of side of learning new languages whilst also practicing that, that writing. Now, that was a nice idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's so geeky. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you about some of the articles you publish. And I think one of the things that people come to us when they're trying to start writing and they're afraid of is kind of they put themselves out there as being an expert, let's say. And they're a little bit afraid of like making an opinion or that might be wrong or giving people wrong advice. And I know some of your articles, like some of my favorite articles of yours were articles that were pretty opinionated, such as you have one about not using IDs anymore. Mm -hmm. And especially in programming, like people can be super opinionated about how they're, you know, they're they're writing code. So do you have any thoughts on like kind of getting over this roadblock of being afraid that people will, uh, that you're giving away like bad advice or that people not like your opinion? Yeah, yeah, sure. A lot of people voice the same fear. Uh, I've heard it a lot of times. I don't have a blog because what if I'm wrong? So my advice, not to say that I am necessarily correct, but my advice to these people is usually if you feel if you feel like you're not correct or if you feel like there's a chance you might be wrong, either make that, a, make that apparent at the beginning of the article or on the flip side, uh, write about something that you are dead certain about. So if you've got any numbers or statistics to back things up, that's going to help prove your case. The other option you've got is adopting a writing style like Chris Coyers, for example, who he's just like, yeah, this might work, this kind of works, this seems to work. And you can't really argue with that because he's putting himself out there immediately saying, this seems to work, I'm not quite sure why. He's got a bunch of stuff where you just read bits of his articles and you just think, this guy's super laid back. And even if he is wrong, I'm not going to get mad at him because <laughs> he knows he might be wrong. And then the last thing is, if you if you do turn out to be wrong, that's fine. It's the quickest way to learn something is to do it wrong the first time. So just go back to the article. Uh, well, accept that you're wrong very humbly and graciously. Go back to the article and write an addendum that just says, oh, by the way, it turns out, given new information, that this isn't the best thing to do. But yeah, uh, uh, my advice to people would normally, if you're starting out writing, write about things you're definitely certain about. It's just very risky to, if your first blog post was like a, yeah, look how good I am and look how correct I am about this, I'm a voice of authority. And then you turn out to be wrong. It's going to be quite hard to get build traction if you start out like that. So I just write about what you know. Write things that are just just make it 
make people very aware that it is opinion or that it might be subjective yeah. and, and do things like that. The things that I write about where I do write with conviction are basically things that I have lived through or that I've got case studies and we've got data or we've got actual things that show you this did not work. And people write equally opinionated counter-attacks, or not counter-attacks, sorry, but counter-arguments. And this is all just good. This is good for everyone, right? It gets that debate going. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that it's, a certain, it's certainly a very valid fear, but there are ways around it. Yeah, totally. And actually, being called out if you're wrong about something is actually a very good thing. I mean, everybody should want that. I, so I agree with you so much, but I know a lot of people who don't share the same sentiment. I love being told I'm wrong. My girlfriend would tell you, my girlfriend would tell you, different, but I love being told I'm wrong because it's like, huh, there must be a better way of doing this. I really enjoy that enlightenment of knowing that I was doing something inefficiently or wrong or ineffectively. People should really enjoy being told they're wrong. because It's like, it's an opportunity to learn something new. That's what being wrong is an opportunity to learn something correctly. But yeah, I wish everyone thought like you. <laughs> no, but again, going back to the thing you said at the beginning, it might be a coincidence or stuff like that. You up to now have a lot of values and stuff like that that you're sharing with us, which are showing us there's no coincidence. You have a set of values and beliefs and stuff like that, which got you to a point where you're at right now. So, all right, let's go on. It's good. <laughs> cool. Thank you. So also on the subject you mentioned of talking about or writing about what you know, one thing that I, at least from my standpoint, what I've noticed you've done is you've really focused heavily on CSS. Not even, of course, you talk about front end a little bit in more a broader sense, but you've kind of narrowed down on like CSS. And then you even said before, like CSS architecture, scaling for large teams and performance on like pretty, on a pretty refined subject. So can you discuss that a little bit of choosing to kind of like narrow your writing and your personal brand down to something like that? Yeah, definitely. It's a gift and a curse. It's definitely got plus points, but it also comes with a few negatives. Start with the negatives first, I guess. I think that someone, as someone who specialized so heavily in CSS or in one thing, I'm kind of typecast. So I think that if I ever wanted to go and work for a company again, I would find it a lot harder than other candidates. I might be relatively well-known. That might be worth something to an employer. But really, who's going to employ a front-end developer who doesn't do JavaScript? Uh, so I've definitely kind of set myself up in a position where I'm potentially less employable in, in the mass market. So that that is quite a, a concern. Also, there's things like you've got people who are full-stack developers who can create their own startups. They can build their own things, whereas all I can really do is make things bold and float things left, right? So I, there's <laughs> stuff like that where I do feel like I've kind of narrowed myself into this bit of a corner. But then to talk about the plus points, it means that anybody who needs my services knows very well that they need my services. I don't have much competition. It means that if somebody thinks, oh, we need someone to come in and help us write some like CSS to make this application last for the next five years, they're probably going to come to me for that. There aren't many people competing directly with me, which means that I've got a very concentrated share of a very small specific market. Uh, if I was just, uh, if I was like a front end architect that did, or rather if I was just like a front general front end developer or a full stack developer, there are millions of them out there. So the competition's a little more fierce. So it means that my work is, it comes from a much smaller market, but that market is much more concentrated. Really, really, really cool uh, thing happened to them. Um, uh, it was last year, the, the, um, the UN got in touch with me. I did some work for the UN. When an email from the UN arrives, you think, oh, shit, what have I done? And I was like, no, it's, uh, it's a guy at the UN in, uh, in, in Denmark, in Copenhagen. And he was like, um, we want you to come and help us with this project. It's, uh, it's this, this, and this. Come and, come and work on it with us. And I asked him, like, yeah, but don't you have, like, government people who do this for you? Don't you have, like, your own suite of just, you're like, no, no, you're literally the only person we could think of who can provide what we need. And I was like, 
How how insane is that? It was absolutely crazy. Uh, so those are the upsides. So I would recommend that if anyone does want to specialize, commit to it fully and be aware of the the negatives of that's basically all you can you can you will be known for or you will be able to do. I could start learning JavaScript in in like pretty huge depth or learning React or anything like that. But that for me is going to be an opportunity cost. Anytime I spend learning something else, it's time I can't be focusing on what I'm already known for. So with everything that you're doing with CSS Wizardry, you've been putting in like a huge investment for a long time. How do you directly make money off of it? How do you see a financial return? So CSS Wizardry, the blog, and nearly all of my speaking are loss leaders. I make a loss on CSS Wizardry. In, in technical terms, I make a loss on that kind of product. Most of the speaking I do, I, I've got a I've got a speaker's fee for events that have the budget for that. But any any indie event that wants me to, anyone that will fly me out to hang out in a new place and just all I have to do is give them a 30-minute talk, again, that's an opportunity that I can't say no to. So um, I get to travel a lot, but that doesn't pay me much, if any, money. So all the money comes from the consultancy stuff that I do, my actual client work. So yeah, it's basically I run the blog, any like open source stuff, just kind of for free. So that someone would see, an, see me speaking at a conference and say, oh, we need what this guy's talking about. So then I go in and consult and 100% of my income comes from that. It means I'm not mega rich. You know, I'm not like, I'm not doing everything for the cash. I very, I seldom do things for the money. I've got a really good lifestyle business. Yeah, I can pick my schedule. I can do pretty much whatever I want to do. And that's because of having like the brand is, is what sells me. It's kind of like I said, a loss leader. That's my marketing budget, basically, is the speaking and the, the blog. And all of my money comes from consultancy engagements. So that'd be workshops, public workshops, private workshops for uh, clients. I've got uh, a couple of large clients who I've got consultancy retainers with. So basically, they've just got me readily available anytime they need advice or help. They just call me up and I can go in and visit them. But I have been thinking more about, I'll be quite candid, quite frank. My business model it's kind of a good job that I don't want to become a millionaire because it's not going to happen with what I do. If you want to be rich, don't do what I do. It's a very it's a very inefficient way of earning money. If I want to be with a client for two days, give them a two-day workshop, and they're in San Francisco, it's going to take me like a week of my time to earn two days' worth of money, if that makes sense. Okay. Because I do everything on-site. I don't do any remote work. It means that it's a very inefficient way of earning money. Doing two days' work might cost me six days of my time. So my rates are adjusted accordingly. My rates are adjusted to take that into account. But I'm currently exploring or thinking about how to get passive income. So uh, yeah, Wes Boss style video tutorials and, and sort of courses, things like that. I think for someone like me, with my kind of setup, that kind of passive income could be a really nice way of just supplementing like regular client work. Yeah. Actually considering getting workshops recorded kind of professionally get like a video team in record a workshop then just stick those on vimeo for you know however much that's something i'm toying with at the moment as i stand right now i earn more than enough money but like i say it's not a lucrative get rich quick scheme i do it mainly because i love it one of the best bits of advice i was ever given was by a guy called oliver reichenstein he's the owner and founder of uh, information architects the big sort of design firm and he, he told me don't do it for the money but never do it for no money Basically, if you just chase the cash, you're not going to be happy, but make sure that nobody takes you for a month. Make sure nobody kind of you know, takes advantage of you. So yeah, never do it for the money, but never do it for no money. Nice. I thought I, was, that's, I think that's just such a succinct way of saying, don't follow money, but make sure you get paid. Yeah, totally. And you know, we were looking through a blog and we've been interviewing people who have done blogs and content publications. And we noticed that you don't have any place to opt in for a mailing list. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, can, can you explain that? Is that a decision? Is that like, 
or is it just you never got to opening your mailing list or something like that? A bit of both, I guess. A bit of advice that I gave out to a bunch of friends recently was uh, never get into anything that you can't easily get out of. You know, if I was to commit to a mailing list, that means I either have to commit to a mailing list, which is time I don't necessarily have, or I could start a mailing list and it trails off. And then I'd rather have no mailing list at all than one that's gone stale. So, And there are other people out there doing better jobs. I think I could come along and start a mailing list, but you know, there, are other, there are other ones that capture things. But, but so many people do seem to have them. That I wonder if I'm missing out on something. Like, is there some kind of way of, I don't know, what's, what's, the, what's the attraction of them? So I'll tell you what, like if you have a mailing list and you have like people on your private mailing list, like, you, you, have, you have your audience, right? So people who come to mm-hmm. your site right now, they're just analytics. They're like cold traffic, okay? And they know you probably, but you don't know them and you have no idea who they are and you don't, know, you don't have any way of reaching them again. Like, you could have cut David and I back in 2008 or nine and when you had your first like few blog posts, basically. And then let's say five years from then, having the impact that you had on us, you decide to, let's say, launch a course or now try to get passive income and you have like a great product that you built or whatever. And then you just release an email to all your followers and then they will buy your stuff immediately meaning right now you don't have a way to reach out besides writing a, another article but when you have a private email list that, that that's like something that really helps you out in that like when you have stuff to offer as well ah, you may have just convince me i'm, I'm <laughs> gonna start researching this afternoon yeah. i'll give you five percent of everything <laughs> well, um, listeners you, you heard it here first <laughs> <laughs> no, I, actually we have, a, we have a great lesson on star project accelerator that we can uh, just share with you because it's just like it's something that is, I think, like for your blog, we're like going through and we're like, wait, you, you can't opt in on, on a mailing list. It's like, that, and we want to, here, take my email. <laughs> it's like, I, get, I bet a lot of That's people crazy. like that are when they read your stuff because you write quality stuff, you care about your audience, but you, you don't grow your audience. You don't, you don't have, you have probably, you know, really tight followers, but they should be on your mailing list and you should have their emails, I think. Like, that's, that's my concept. I think. I think that's some good advice. Thank you. I will start looking into it then. Brings up a good question, though, um, that we were discussing before. So we realized you don't have the mailing list, but then we were saying, but you seem to get a lot of traffic to your, your posts and stuff. Do you have a specific workflow or something that you do to promote blog posts after you write them? And How do your blog posts get out to people? I just tweet them once, maybe twice, and that's usually it. What I will do is I'll time things so that I'll never, even if I write an article at 7 p.m. on a Sunday, I'll tweet it. I basically tweet it on the Monday when San Francisco started waking up. Okay. Uh, so I'll tweet it like UK afternoon. So it means that sort of, yeah, 5 p.m. Tel Aviv time, the, you'll see the article. But sort of 8 a.m. SF time, they'll be waking up and checking Twitter, you know, whatever. And that is pretty much it. I've got quite a large following on Twitter, which is, which is very fortunate. So if I just throw it out into the crowd, it's gonna, someone's going to catch it. Yeah. This is something that I really ought to look into more, like insights and working out more of a strategy, like oh, just getting some historical data. Sharing an article at this time on a Wednesday seems to be the most effective, so therefore do it all then. Data is everything, I guess. Yeah, there's so much room for optimization in everything we I'm do. I'm going to come away from this podcast completely rethink my entire strategy now. <laughs> <laughs> no, because we were wondering, first of all, you selling your time as a consultant, I can understand that because you love what you do and you keep yourself really like kind of like on the cutting edge of what's going on in startups and, and big companies. So you really kind of like are professional and building yourself. I can understand that. But what we, what we said to ourselves is like, this guy should have a, an online course or like anything which is kind of like of a product he built or something like 
Exactly what you said. Some sort of passive income. Some sort of passive income. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I mean that's something that I think you will go really well once you want to try and get into that world. Yeah, yeah. I, I know from our audience, there's I'm sure a ton of listeners who are also you know your audience as well, people who have been following your post. Mm. I mean, it would be a good test bed for certain things as well. So I've been thinking. I've got like 50 draft tweets where I think, if I tweet this, it's not enough text to give it context and it'd be hard to gauge kind of interest in X, Y, Z, whatever I'm thinking about tweeting. Whereas a mailing list would be brilliant, longer form, more direct. It's like I'm currently writing a brand new workshop for 2017, which is all about performance. And I keep toying with how do I actually... Writing a blog post about it seems inappropriate because that just gets buried in the chronological like you know, stacks of time. Mm-hmm. How would I how would I tell people that hey, I'm thinking of running this workshop? Would anybody be potentially interested in it? Any early yeah. buyers get twenty five percent off or whatever? So I guess a mailing list would be the best way to do that. Yeah, it's like well, a- I guess that's my afternoon sorted. Setting for mailing list. <laughs> <laughs> and also, can I ask a bit about like you you're doing a lot of public speaking and workshops and how do you kind of promote your content your or your blog in those workshops and public speaking, do you, do you find that they correlate, that they, they bring you more following? Yeah, a little bit. The way I kind of manage to publicize my blog in workshops is usually someone will have a question about something. And I'm not even kidding. Like, you know, it'll be like four or five times in a workshop. I'm like, oh, uh, I've written an article on that. <laughs> and I'll just send them the link. So it's good in that way. It's like means that the workshop is like the live kind of version of it. And it's like, we can ask questions, we can build things, we can look at things, we can break things, we can do whatever we want. Yeah. But if you need some kind of permanent resource, then there's probably an article. So I funnel people to the site that way. But it's kind of weird. I've been at so many conferences. It happened to me literally last week. I was at a conference and somebody came up to me after I'd done my talk. And they said, oh, I was reading about this naming convention. It seems quite interesting. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. And I was like, oh, um, that, that's me. I wrote that article. And he was like, really? <laughs> so there are people out there who know about CS Wizardry but don't know about me like harry the person so there's probably something i could do there to try and tie them together a bit more yeah. there's one thing that i there's one thing i really avoid doing and again i'm gonna be honest i'll be quite candid a lot of people know who i am now at conferences a lot of people in the room will have some idea who i am so i never do the whole hi i'm harry i write at css wizardry i do this i'm this job because if even if 40 percent of the people in the room already know who i am they're bored and it just seems a bit sort of self-serving to do that little bit of a hey, guess who I am? Because they don't care about me. They care about what's on the slides. They care about the content. So I think a lot of people are just a bit oblivious to, oh, we actually read his BAM article and we didn't even realize it was him. So I could probably, I actually avoid that on purpose, avoid letting people know who I am because I'm just very aware of sounding a bit narcissistic. I would hate to get on stage and be like, these are all the people I've worked for and this is where you can follow me on Twitter. I'd just like, hey, I'm Harry, everyone. We're going to talk about CSS today and just get on with it. But that probably leads to its own problems. Like people just have no idea that, oh, this is how we get in touch with this guy. Or this guy wrote the article that we already know of and know about. So that's probably something I could do to work out a nice way of working that into talks. Yeah. So, something I noticed from you that I think is a pattern we also hear from other people we've talked to is basically you you just provide like amazing value. And because you provided amazing value, even though you haven't necessarily optimized every single detail of your self-promotion or of like the mailing list or whatever, every single detail, you didn't optimize about your audience. You just kind of provided amazing value for a long time. Because of that, you have a huge following on Twitter and you have a huge following on your blog. And I think that's something really that a lot of our, our listeners can really take away from. But of course, there's optimizations to do and always like room for improvement. But I think the core of what you've done and the core is that you've just provided great stuff. And because you've provided great stuff, great work and quality, people, like, people come back. People want that. Yeah, I, th- I, I think that's definitely true. I think that um, if you want to promote yourself, you must be promoting yourself for a reason, right? And it's probably because 
you are really good at something. So I think promoting yourself is kind of putting the cart before the horse. It's like, well, you're not selling yourself. You're selling what you know. You're the you're part of it. So what you need to make sure is that you provide really good value, but you have to make sure that the person behind that value is a nice person, is likable, is professional, is approachable. There's no point being like the nicest person in the world and everybody's best friend if what you're delivering is actually a waste of money. Yeah, it's irresponsible to do a bad job, right? So you have to make sure, the first thing you have to make sure is you do a good job. And also, if you do a really good job, but no one likes working with you, if you go in and do a workshop and you're just rude and you turn up five minutes late and you leave five minutes early, you might deliver amazing value. But all people are going to remember is that we didn't like being in a room with that guy for eight hours. So for me, it's just make sure I deliver value, make sure the client's happy, because I come from like a background that has never been surrounded by much money. So I'm very aware of the value of things. And I've got a massive responsibility to my clients to make sure that they're spending their money very wisely. I also have to make sure that I would say to my client, hey, look, that was a really enjoyable workshop. I don't have a flight until sort of 10 p.m. Do you want to grab dinner together? And then we just hang out. And I think that's really valuable having that. I want to make sure that everyone in that room knows that I'm basically just kind of like a friendly person who I can maybe hopefully teach them some stuff about performance. Yeah, you're not, you're not a robot. You're just showing up, you know, here's the code, take this. You're a real person. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think people value that, which is maybe why I've not focused too much on optimizing my brand. I'm a pretty chilled out, laid back guy. I will turn up, I'll, we'll do the workshop, we'll go for a beer afterwards, and we'll probably stay in touch for the next however many years. So it, maybe it just never even crossed my mind to kind of optimize that process. Yeah. By the way, I, what you talked about before is exactly what Neil Gaiman talks about in his commencement speech. Have you seen the commencement speech by Neil Gaiman? It's no. like it's an amazing commencement speech. He talks about like, making good art. He's, like, he's a writer and he's an amazing writer and comic artist. But anyway, he. He was talking about you have to be good in order to succeed. You have to be good at three things, but only you have to be really good at two. You can have like, you only need two out of the three things. The three things are you have to be good with people or you have to be very, very good at what you do or you have to show up on time. So you need only two. <laughs> you cannot show up on time, but be very good with people and very professional what you do, or you can <laughs> show up on time. But yeah, yeah. yeah so really. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> So something else I want to talk to you about is you do a lot of open source projects, right? You have your own CSS framework, and mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen a few others. Can you talk about your open source projects and kind of as far as the time investment you put into them and what you see out of it? I mean, right off the bat, I'm going to just hold my hands up and say that I'm not a very responsible open source developer. Throwing something on GitHub and being an open source developer are two very different things. And when I first started open sourcing, like five years ago, I didn't realize just how different those two things were. So I've got an open source framework, which is used by a lot of people, a lot more than I ever realized. And again, because I don't have this optimized feedback channel, I don't actually know how many people are using this framework. I know it's in the thousands, but I don't know if it's 20,000 or 3,000 or 100,000, but enough people are using it that it's getting a lot of uh, attention, a lot of interest, a lot of feedback, a lot of issues on GitHub or pull requests. And I'm my times, my, my schedule is very sporadic. Uh, so I can't say that every Friday is open source day because I might need to be somewhere on that Friday. So I, I can't do things like that, which means that unfortunately for the last couple of years, Inuit CSS has kind of been almost abandoned where I've been doing major kind of maintenance on it as in like important things, but for the most part, not much. So finding time to actually manage open source, I think is something that every developer should be aware of before they enter open source. It's a lot more work than a lot of people realize, certainly than I realized. But I've got a few other open source tools, none are quite as popular as Inuit, but they're things that 
of starting up, putting things on GitHub saying, this is on GitHub because you can have it for free, but don't treat it like an open source project. If you don't like it, don't use it. If you want to change it, fork it and change it. Like I'm, I'm giving you this, but I'm not necessarily open sourcing it in the traditional sense. So a bit more transparency up front. Mm-hmm. But the actual interesting thing with Inuit is um, well, two interesting things, actually. You end up creating quite a big problem for yourself if you don't maintain open source. There's a company an enormous company who've got 40,000 software engineers and they all use Inuit CSS. And I, uh, it's their, their kind of development stack, their UI toolkit is based on Inuit CSS. But I went out to their offices in, in America, I've been out there twice now, and I sat down with one of their tech leads, their heads of tech, a very sort of important man. And he basically looked at me and said, look, Harry, we use Inuit CSS because our developers enjoy it. It scales well, it's fast. But we are terrified by the fact that you don't maintain it. Like we're a company of 40,000 software engineers. We've got managers who are concerned by the fact that this is not a maintained project. And I was like, (laughs) just think about that responsibility for a second. There's me, one guy in the UK who just put something on GitHub. And now there's someone telling me that we are terrified by the fact (laughs) this is maintained. It's like, well, if you sling me cash to look after it, then we can... They weren't saying it in a nasty way either. They were saying, look, we want to keep using it, but do you have any plans for Inuit? Uh, but that struck me just thinking the kind of gravity of, of things is way bigger than I would have ever anticipated. So my advice to anyone going into open source is be prepared or be very transparent with the fact that you don't intend to maintain something, if that's the case, or just be prepared for the massive time cost and responsibility that can come with it. But I want to give some people some big ups, actually. I've got a team of people, core contributors to Inuit now. There are four developers. There's a Serbian guy who's lovely. I've met him in person. There are two German guys I've met in person. There's a French guy with Fortray I haven't had a chance to meet in person yet. These guys are amazing. They're keen Inuit CSS users, and they've actually joined as core contributors. And I've been traveling a lot this last couple of months, and all I see every day is Slack. These four guys are just on it. They're absolutely nailing it. Nice. They're doing a really good job. Nice. And that is that is the power of open source. They're doing it for free, right? They're not getting any kickbacks from this. They're not getting any kind of anything from me. But yeah, just big ups to those guys for for really helping me out with this. Uh, Inuit CSS is launching a beta release as we speak. It's a new version. Cool. So yeah, it's 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 important to have that kind of network if you are going to do a serious open source project. Yeah. And how did you find them? And how did you find people to want to contribute? They found me. Uh, basically, what happened was Inuit CSS was online, and it was, like I say, not getting looked after very well. I started to notice these certain four people over and again, answering other people's questions in the issues, submitting pull requests, giving me feedback. And it was the same four people, just just from their own choice, uh, independently as well. None of these people know each other. Out of their own separate individual choices, all four of them decided to be active in the community. So I pinged them an email. I said, look, you guys are doing amazing work. I'm incredibly grateful. Can I make you official maintainers and give you proper full admin access to the repository? And they were just like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, they were just just vocal in the community, providing genuine value for me, helping me out. So so I thought, well, why don't I ask them to officially help me even more? I guess I got a bit... (laughs) bit cheeky but they said yes and they're doing they're doing really good work cool Cool. and we're soon to wrap things up but i just want to ask you like about workshops because lately i've been doing some workshops at companies and just i bet for anyone who's a professional and doing workshops in companies do you have any tips on on running workshops stuff that you really like found out while you were doing more and more yeah so there's, there's a ton of stuff and i guess we couldn't really cover all of it. I guess key things for someone who wants to run workshops is design like a completely neutral kind of client agnostic workshop first, write a workshop that could work anywhere, uh-huh. but design it modularly. So you've got topics you can slot in and out. So if you're doing performance, you might talk about, well, here's a module on 
like you know CSS paint performance, rendering performance. Here's a module on JavaScript performance. Here's a module on you know the network and this kind of stuff. I have like a generic workshop that could go anywhere. But then if you're that, that's the kind of workshop you could run at a public event at a conference. Then what you can do is you can get in touch with the client and you give them your your price and you can give them two prices. You can say, here's the price, but we just run it like it's a conference workshop mm. or we can make it more bespoke. What do you want to learn about? Yeah. Do that like a month, two weeks before you go and visit them. And they say, well, actually, we need to know a lot about like Flexbox, for example. Mm. So that kind of stuff is, that's quite useful for adding specific value to a client, mm. just kind of tailoring it for them. Make sure you know who you've got in the room. First thing you should do is go around the room and say, look, just, I want everyone to give me a quick, hey, this is what I'm called, this is what I work on, this is what problems I'm facing, and this is what I would like to get out of the workshop. Mm -hmm. That is a couple of things. If you're the kind of person who kind of gets nervous in front of a crowd, it just gives you a chance to just sit and observe and kind of let someone else be the speaker for a a few minutes. But also it means that you can start thinking how you're going to work the day. So it might be like, oh, we've got more software engineers than I realized, so maybe we should focus on engineering principles for CSS rather than focusing too heavily on the design process. You might see that we've got a product owner in the room, so you might want to talk about the business cost of tech debt. Mm -hmm. So knowing who you've got in the room can allow you to, again, just deliver specific value. And do you do after that do a survey and stuff like that? I mean, how do you get better at at your workshop? I gather kind of informal feedback. Mm -hmm. Usually that takes the format of go for a drink with the attendees afterwards. Um, I always recommend this to anyone running a workshop. Unless you absolutely have to like get a flight at a certain time, always make sure you stick around for a few hours afterwards. Yeah. Yesterday, for example, I was workshopping with a client in the south of England. I booked like a late train. And I said to him, look, I don't have to get a train for another three and a half hours. Who wants to go grab a drink? Who wants to go for dinner? Uh, people were like, yeah, let's do it. And they would say things like, I got some really good feedback just yeah. you know, having a beer with someone. He was like, I really enjoyed it, but my favorite was the performance thing. So that's what I got most value out of. So my, I know that, okay, right, so people are enjoying the performance thing perhaps more than the other stuff because maybe the other stuff's getting a bit dated now. And then yeah, whoever actually hired you to do the workshop, whichever kind of manager it was that got in touch with you, make sure you have like a proper process for closing your relationship with them. Email them any material slides and say to them, if you've got any feedback from attendees, I'd be really grateful to hear it. One thing I don't do is have like a survey that I give people because Often there's either too much pressure on them to provide something or they all say, oh, it was amazing, it was amazing, it was amazing because they feel bad. Even if it's anonymous, they feel bad giving you know, bad feedback. So I just go for anecdotal stuff. People will be honest with you when you're sat having a beer with them. I think for my new workshop I'm writing, I probably will set up a slightly more structured feedback mechanism, like a Google form or something where it's just a case of which bits of the workshop did you find most useful? Mm-hmm. Was it more advanced or less advanced than you expected? Then you can just say to the manager, do you think the money you spent was worth it? That's going to be a scary one to ask someone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I just have one last question for you, if that's cool to you. So my last question for you is, who are you influenced by? You know, whether it's books, blogs, podcasts, anyone that you can give back to our listeners? Yeah, definitely. So in what I do, there are a small handful of people I really look to for technical information. Uh, Nicholas Gallagher, Jonathan Snook, Nicole Sullivan. People like that, kind of the people that most listeners or most people who are into CSS will be already aware of these people, right? So I've got direct peers who do very good work in the uh, in the field. But I get a lot of inspiration from software engineers. So I can't write a line of actual programming code, right? I, I, I've tried. I'm not very good at it. But there are people who've written papers from the 70s who you can borrow the actual fundamental concept. If you can understand the concept behind some of these architectural principles from software, that's very inspiring for me. So I'm like, okay, well, if they solved it, in the 70s, 
why are we struggling to do it in 2016 in CSS? And you start to form, like, make little ribbons, tie those together. Specific guy, Martin Fowler, chief scientist at ThoughtWorks, I think he is. Anything he writes, I mean, most of it, straight over my head. <laughs> but the actual fundamental principles that I can pick out of his writing influence a lot of the way I work. And I also looked at other things like just real-life construction, like, you know, I can't think of any specific examples, I guess. But when you just see things like engineers, real engineers, like proper engineers out building things, solving problems that they're dealing with scale, they're dealing with longevity, you know, bridge is going to last for the next 200 years, for example. What kind of processes would they have in place? So I look a lot at kind of engineering and manufacture. I mean, agile and, you know, Kanban and continuous improvement, that all came from Toyota, right? That came from a real life manufacturing process. There's tons of stuff out there you could just basically steal and apply to the work that I do. So that's, uh, yeah, I look to a lot of places for inspiration. Thanks a lot. And we'll put those in the show notes for everyone listening. And on that note, thank you so much for your time, Harry. Yeah, I really yeah, enjoyed talking. Great episode. It's been fun. It's <laughs> been a great episode. Yeah, I, uh, I really enjoyed that. It's like a, a different format than I'm used to. It wasn't all about what do you think of React. It was a really <laughs> enjoyable uh, podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for spilling so much knowledge and insights. Yeah, that was great. Cool. Well, no, thank you. I've got a mailing list to set up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good luck, man. Cool, guys. Right. Thank you thank very you. much. Bye. So that's a wrap. Thank you, hackers, for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the show. You can find all the links and resources from this conversation on hackingui.com slash podcast. If you're interested in joining the Side Project Accelerator, applications for the next batch are open until November 10th. In the Side Project Accelerator, we put you through eight intense weeks to build the foundation for you to gather your audience, and we give you the tools to reach them through a blog and an awesome newsletter. We share all of our tools with you, including the internal software that we built in order to get the job done. You can apply now on sideprojectaccelerator.com. Last thing, if you enjoyed this show, we would love to hear from you. Just tweet at us at HackingUI or just review this podcast on iTunes. Those reviews really help us out and make our day. We'll see you next week, hackers, and remember to keep hacking. <laughs>